for them in the inn. And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem, and this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. And this is the word of the God. Church, you can please be seated. The Advent wreath is a circle with no beginning and no end. It is a symbol of endless love and faithfulness. Out of the darkness, light shines, pointing us in hope to the one who came to overcome the darkness of this world and to be the, our light in the world to come. Church, please pray with me. God of angels and sheep, God of the poor and meek, in these days before Christmas, quiet us so we may hear where new life is struggling to be born. Slow our rush so we may hear the faint sound of angel wings and the words whispered in hope. Open our hearts to the wonder of Emmanuel, God with us. In Jesus' name, amen. Squeezing by you guys. If you guys heard um, during the announcements, today uh, we wanted to start Advent off with a bang. So we decided to erect a tent outside. If you saw the tent, um, I just want to ask you all, if you'll give a round of applause for our gather team, everybody. <laughs> Amazing. Amazing. We, it uh, was a a lot of running and sprinting and wondering whether or not we would actually have everything set up for tonight. Uh, and also, if you guys wouldn't mind giving the band a round of applause as well. So thankful for them. They, um, we are actually, uh, Brandon, who is our normal worship leader, he's on vacation and that's not much needed break. And it's just amazing to have other great and capable worship leaders come and lead us with Sarah and Daphne and Josh. And so we're so appreciative of them. Uh, but I want to start tonight by saying a Merry Advent. Uh, you hear that often, Merry Advent. This is the Advent season as we're moving towards Christmas. We say Merry Christmas, but some of the things happen in the life of the church are a little bit different. Advent is a period of waiting, and we begin to wait, and we slowly move to Christmas Eve as we celebrate the birth of Christ that took place on Christmas Day, or at least how we celebrate it. And we're going to be going through this series called Love Invites, and it's going to go through the four Sundays of Advent, 
where you're going to get to sing Christmas songs, and we're going to have different renditions. Uh, next week's going to be a jazz week, so you're going to want to come check it out. Uh, we're going to have a choir. Don't know how we're going to do that, but we're going to have a choir. It's going to be amazing. Uh, so we're going to do different kind of cool things. We've got the Advent candle and all the different things happening, but what we want to do as we walk through uh, the traditional text that you read and you discuss and you think about uh, during the season of Advent and on Christmas Eve is we want to ask the question, who are the people that God invited into this special, unique, world-changing, calendar-changing event, which is the birth of Christ? And what we're going to see is that love invites very unlikely people. You, know, you ask the question, okay, this event at its time before the death and resurrection of Christ, this event, the birth of Jesus, the Son of God coming into the world, is the most earth-shattering event of all time. And so who are the people that God is going to invite? Who are the people that are going to be privileged enough to come and to see and to participate and to be part of this moment? Many of you are in very privileged positions where you uh, have the ability to oversee staff and to hire people. And you may not feel like that's a privileged position, but it is a privileged position to get to go through the resumes and think through who is the person that you want to hire for a position. And when you think about that, you always want to hire the best of the best. You want to hire the most skilled, the most competent, the best fit. All of us here have been through interviews for jobs, and you know they are weeding everyone out to find the perfect fit for the job because you go through rounds and rounds of interviews. They make you take all these tests. Some people ask you to take personality tests. I mean, it's unbelievable all the stuff you have to go to just to find the right person for the job. This is how we operate. We want to find the best fit the very best of the best. But God operates different than us, completely different. And what we're going to see over the next few weeks is that God invites very unlikely people, people that are actually unfit, people that are labeled by their society as outcast or weak uh, or kind of people you'd want to avoid, the people that are left out and overlooked are actually the people that God invites into this world-changing, calendar-changing event, the birth of Christ the Savior. And so tonight, we're going to look at the first group of people that God invites in, and that's the shepherds. And so if you will turn with me to the first couple verses, you can see it on the screen behind me or in your worship program or your Bible. The first few verses of our text tonight says this, in those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quinarius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David. And to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, he was engaged, who was with child. She was pregnant. I want to sh point out something here that is deeply encouraging. There's a lot of things that we could discuss here, but one thing that I think is important for us to grab onto this evening, and that's this. God is in control of all things, including governments and authorities. I think we need to hear that. God is in control of all things, including governments and authorities. You see, before this moment, hundreds of years prior in the Old Testament, there's a book called Micah, and the prophet gives a prophecy in Micah 5.2. It's a prophecy from God, and the prophecy says this. One day, someone will be born, a son will be born in the town of Bethlehem, the little town of Bethlehem. 
And the one that will be born will rule, and he will be the ancient of days, the shepherd of God. He is great to the ends of the earth, and he will be peace for people. You see, what was understood about this prophecy in Micah hundreds of years prior is that this was a prophecy about the Messiah, Emmanuel, God with us, the one who will come to redeem and to deliver and to save the people of God. And the prophecy says that the Messiah will be born in Bethlehem. Well, we have a problem because as we'll see in our series, God chose Mary and Joseph to be the mother and the father. Mary is the mother who is carrying Jesus in her womb, and Joseph is the father. Though they're engaged, Joseph is not the biological father, but he is privileged to raise Jesus. And that causes all types of tension and issues for them and their reputation. But the issue for them is that they live in Nazareth. And Nazareth is 90 miles north of Bethlehem in the region of Galilee. But the prophecy says that the Savior is going to be born in Bethlehem. Now, if you've been around someone that's had a child, uh, is pregnant, and if you uh, have been pregnant yourself, the idea of traveling on a donkey 90 miles near the end of your pregnancy, uh, <laughs> if your husband came to you and said, we're going to get on a donkey, we're going to go 90 miles south, um, the husband would be dead. There's no way it would last that. So, I mean, you can imagine, like, you're thinking to yourself, how in the world is this going to take place? Maybe Mary and Joseph are pondering this thought as well. And it's not as if God is up in heaven sitting there thinking to himself, oh, I think I got myself into a dilemma here. Like, I chose Mary and, and Joseph, but they're in Nazareth. And there's this prophecy in Micah that Savior's supposed to be born in Bethlehem. How am I going to get them down to Bethlehem? No way Mary's going to want to come. How's Joseph going to tell her? Maybe a vision, maybe a dream. And he's, God's trying to figure this out. And all of a sudden, Caesar Augustus is like, hey, we're going to do a census and uh, everyone needs to be registered in their old town. And then God's like, oh, thank you. Thank you, Caesar. Coming through in the clutch. Really appreciate that. Right? God is in control of all of these events. He's actually using the Roman government, the authorities and the rulers to fulfill his promises. Because the promises of God are true. And he always fulfills them. But the problem is he fulfills them in our perspective. He fulfills them in his time, in his way, for his glory. You see... That thought that the promises of God are true and he always fulfills them, but in his time, in his way, in his glory, may be something that you say, yes, I believe in that. But it's really difficult to cling to. It's really difficult to cling to when you're facing difficult situations in your life, when you look at your life and you're like, I don't know how the promises of God here are going to come through. I mean, I know that Romans tells me that for those that love God, God is working good in my life, but I don't see how this can be turned into good. I don't see how these ashes can be made beautiful. I just, I can't imagine a way that would take place, especially moving into this season of Advent, this Christmas season. For many, this is a difficult season. It's a season of loneliness. It's a season of feeling loss, of of struggling with different kind of relational tension and family drama. Maybe some of you, as you're ending the year, you're looking back on 2018 and you're thinking to yourself, this is not the year that I thought it would be. I'm not where I thought I would be in my career, in my life, and it's causing just stress and some internal turmoil. 
And you want to claim that God's promises are true and he's faithful to fulfill them in his time and in his way for his glory, but it's really difficult to hold on to that. And the reason it's difficult to hold on to that and to cling to that is because, one, we have a very narrow point of view. Like, our point of view is very narrow. We can see some of the good things happening in our lives, but it, we're so easily fixate on the negative. We so easily fixate on the weeds and the thorns that are cl- clouding out our view and to try to see a way through that where things can, can move to joy and to peace and to flourishing and to goodness. And it's really hard to see. So it's hard for us to imagine that and to cling to that promise. And the second one is that we're people that cling to control. You resonate with that? Cling to control. Many of us cling to control in our work. Think to yourself in your career. You're like, I I know what I want to accomplish in my life. I know the goals that I want to see fulfilled. And you believe that if you just work hard enough, you're going to fulfill them. You're going to achieve them. You believe that you're in control of accomplishing all of your dreams. And so you stay really late at the office. To the neglect of your family and your friends, you think, if I just work harder than everybody else, surely I will get ahead. Now, God isn't opposed to working hard. We talked about that weeks ago. Maybe you're like me, and you just over-caffeinate yourself, right? Just drink a lot of coffee. Try to stay focused. Be as productive as possible. Maybe you're listening to podcasts, and you're reading different books, and you're, you're trying to learn different insights and wisdom because you believe, listen, I, I know I can control my destiny here. Cling to that control. How many of you feel like you cling to control with your health, right? You try different diets. You've tried many different diets, and you've done keto and whatever that is, and you've done all these other ones as well, and you're in and out of them, and you have this exercise routine, and when you feel sick, you drink like 5 million milligrams of vitamin C because you believe that's going to work, like enough vitamin C for an entire country. You just keep taking it because you believe that you can control your health. I do that. It's like when I'm sick, emergency, just like all day long. It's, I don't know if it does anything, but I've convinced myself that I can do that. We cling to control, right, in our health, and our work, and everything. We just want to feel like we're in control, but the reality is we're not in control. Now, we are called to engage in our life, for sure, in our career, in our relationships, and take care of our health and our bodies. All those things are really good, but we're not actually in control of everything. And until you realize that you're actually not in control of everything and that God is actually in control of all things, including government and authorities, God will not be king and Lord of your life and said God will be like an occasional friend and a possible prayer genie. Because when you recognize that you're actually not in control the way that you imagined you were, and you kind of surrender to God and you trust him with what he's doing in your life and you believe that his promises are true and he's going to fulfill them even when you can't see a way through, even when his timing seems off to you, then God can take the seat of king and lord of your life. But if you resist that, then God is the occasional friend. He's a friend when things are going well. And when things are not going well, maybe God's mad at you or something like that. And he's a possible prayer genie, which is like, because you're trying to control your career and your health and your life, when things aren't going well, maybe a couple requests to God and he's going to come in and maybe he's going to fix something and then you can go back to controlling your life. You see, God isn't a, a prayer genie and he's not an occasional friend. You see, the truth of the gospel and the promise to us is that one, he's sovereign and in control of all things. He's in control of every aspect of your life, and he will fulfill his promises and his timing and his way for his glory, and he's actually always your friend. 
even in the midst of suffering, he's there with you. Most the time, if you take a moment to recognize when you're in the place of deep emotional pain and suffering, God is most near to you there. He's always friend, and also he's not a prayer genie. He's always listening. He's always there for you, but he's going to answer your request in his time for your good, and you may not know that. And we have to remember that. We have to understand that our, our vantage point is narrow, and we're people that cling to control. We have to relinquish that and, and kind of shatter the illusion of our sense of control for us to really see what God is doing in our life and to see him as king and lord over our life. And that's what I think we see here in the very beginning of Luke, is that God is in control of all things, including the Roman government, including Caesar. And like I said, many of you need to know that God is in control of governments. Like, take a breath. He's in control of all things. And he's working everything to fulfill his promises here. And so he's using Caesar and all these things to bring a census. So Joseph and Mary have to. They have no choice. Mary's not happy about it. But she takes the donkey ride 90 miles over several weeks down to Bethlehem. And while they're in Bethlehem, here's what happens in verse 6. While they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes, the rags really, and laid him in a manger. A manger is not a nice, pretty little wooden, uh, you know, kind of crib made by a craftsman. A manger is a feeding trough cut out of stone. The animals would have eaten out of. She wrapped him in rags and put him in a feeding trough because there was no place for them in the inn. They're in a cave here, a stable. In the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, and these shepherds nearby were keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David, who is Christ the Lord, a Savior who is Christ the Lord, and this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. We're going to take a step back here to kind of understand something that was a cultural norm in order to see what's taking place in this passage. So Mary and Joseph have come down 90 miles. They spent time in Bethlehem. And they don't have enough money uh, to stay in the inn. Now, the city is full because everybody has come to this town that had to go there for the census. And um, surely they would have maybe been able to manipulate and find somewhere to stay inside. But they don't have anything to bargain with because they're broke. They're poor. But the innkeeper actually says, listen, I have an option for you. There's, there's a stable. It's like kind of like a cave. You can go there. There's animals and livestock, and, and that's where you can have the baby. And so they have the baby there. And, and nearby, there are some shepherds. And the shepherds are in the fields, and they hear the announcement of the angels, and they go to meet Jesus. Well, see, something is true in this time period that's true for us as well, which is that typically what would happen when a baby was born is that the family would hire heralds. And these heralds would go and announce the birth of the child. And depending on your means, how much money you had, would depend on what your herald looked like. 
So maybe if you had a lot of money, you'd get the best herald, the most charismatic, the loudest voice, the best singer would walk around the town and would literally herald the birth of your child, would let everyone know. Maybe you hired multiple heralds to go to multiple cities because you were a person of influence and power and you wanted everyone to know that your child has been born. Now, if you don't have a lot of money, maybe you hired a friend, someone in the neighborhood would go around and tell people that your baby's been born. We do this too, right? Instagram is free. We let people know, baby's born, maybe a nice filter or something. And then some people, you're going to get the papyrus, it smells like lavender, there's gold leaf on it, you had an artist like sketch the foot of the child and you send it out to like 5,000 people, you know. Just depends on your style and, and maybe your means. We herald the birth and they herald the birth as well. But the problem here, if you notice, is one, Mary and Joseph are broke. They have no money. They can't hire a herald. And no one knows the baby has been born. They're in a cave with some animals, some livestock. And so God provides the herald. The angels, they herald the birth of the son of Christ. And, and so what the angels do, because this, listen, this is the birth of Jesus. This is the Savior. This is the Son of God, the one prophesied in Micah, the Ancient of Days. And so the angels come, and they go to all the rich and influential people all over the town and the region, because the influential and the rich people need to know that Jesus has been born, because those are the type of people that God would go to first, naturally. And so the angels go out, and they let everybody know. They don't do that, right? They go to shepherds, and some of you are imagining shepherds because maybe you've seen like a nativity set or maybe you've seen like a Christmas pageant, like the little candy cane staff. You're like, shepherds are so cool, you know. And as a kid, maybe if you were in one, you got, you got to play with the sheep and so you always wanted to be the shepherd, you know. Shepherds are not like you imagine. Shepherds are low-life thieves. That's what shepherds are. They were outcasts. Nobody wanted to associate with a shepherd. If you walked by a shepherd, you kept your purse tight and you made sure your wallet was in your pockets, Nobody wanted the shepherds to go in the city. They stayed in the fields. They stayed with the animals. Like, stay away from us. They were low lives. They were thieves. So for God to provide the heralds, the angels, to go to shepherds is completely confusing. You imagine how the shepherds felt, right? They've been labeled thieves and low lives, and they've probably given in to that. That's what happens when someone gets labeled something over and over and over again, which is why it's important not to label people. They've probably given in to being a lowlife and an outcast and a thief. They're sitting by the fire, and the, the sheep are out there, and I imagine, you know, they're drinking, they're smoking, they're hanging out. They're sorting through the jewelry of the farmer that they just robbed a couple miles down the road. One of the guys is cleaning his hands a bit because they had to beat up the farmer, and he's getting the blood off, and they're sitting there talking about what they're going to do tomorrow, and then Bam! angels. Can you imagine how they felt? Like, oh my goodness. They take the, the, the jewelry, they put it under, they sit there, they put the cigarette out. They went like, oh, we're, uh, we're just reading the Bible. We're just reading the Bible, drinking a little wine. It's early Passover. We're very religious people, if you didn't know. And uh, that's just what we're doing. Um, they're fearful, right? Why would angels come to people like us? God does not send angels to herald anything good to people like us. We're low-life thieves. This is probably judgment and condemnation. And what do the angels say? They say, fear not. Like, take a breath. You have a wrong perception of God. I'm not here for judgment and condemnation. I'm actually here to herald good news of great joy that's for all people, including shepherds. 
including people like you. And so they sit there and they receive this good news, this gospel that the Savior has been born in Bethlehem. It's probably confusing for them too because then the angels say that the shepherd was born and wrapped in, in, in rags and placed in a feeding trough. And the angels tell the shepherds to go find the baby, which probably was confusing as well. Not only the angels, they're heralding them good news of great joy for all people, which was a shock, but now they're being told to go, to actually go to meet the Savior who's been born. That had to have been completely perplexing. And so they go. This is the heart and the message of, Christ, of the Christmas season, is that God invites all people to himself. God's love invites everybody in. It doesn't matter whether you're rich or you're poor. It doesn't matter what you did last night, last week, last year. It doesn't matter the guilt and the shame that you feel. It doesn't matter what you've been labeled. God invites all people to come to Jesus, to meet him, to find him, to find him as great joy. That's the message of Christmas. And maybe you're thinking about this season and you're, you know that it's going to be an emotional roller coaster this next month. And you're, you're asking yourself, how in the world do I believe that the promises of God are true and that he's going to fulfill them in his time and his way for his glory? How do I find joy in this next month? Go to Jesus. That's what the Christmas message says. Go find Jesus. Thankfully, Jesus tells us this in Matthew 7, 7. He says, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. Ask and will be given. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened. Run after Jesus. Go find Jesus. Pursue Jesus. That's the message of Advent. That's the message of Christmas. God's love invites all people to go find Jesus. So go find them. That's what the shepherds do. Look what they do in verse 15. The angels went away into heaven, and the shepherds said to one another, Okay, let us go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste, and they found Mary and Joseph. They ran there, and the baby was lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up these things, pondering them in her heart. And so immediately when the angels leave, they run. They go take off. They run to Bethlehem. They look all over. They're searching to try to find the Savior, this baby born, wrapped in rags and placed in a manger. And they they come to find Jesus and, and those that are around. And then the angels share their experience, what happened. They share about the, what the angels told them, and, and it says that people were amazed. That's a better translation in Greek here. Maybe in your text it says wondered. Uh, maybe some of them were confused because they didn't really had a hard time trusting what shepherds say, but they were amazed at what took place. But Mary pondered these things in her heart because as we'll see in a couple weeks when we look at Mary is that Mary knew uh, the child that she had been given. She had faith in the reality of her son being the son of God. And then there's this really interesting detail that closes out this section of the story. It says this, and then the shepherds returned, and they went back to their normal life, glorifying and praising God for all that they had heard and seen as it had been told them. 
So after they hear the good news of, of Jesus and his birth and that they're actually invited to go find him, they run to Jesus. They seek him. They knock on the doors and they find him. And when they find him, they, they share about their experience and what they heard and people are amazed and then it's time for them to leave. They can't stay there forever. It's time to go. So they go back to their normal life, but they don't go back to their normal life the same. They go back different. They're changed. They can't undo what happened to them. They don't leave the reality and the truth of who Jesus is in the manger. They go back. It says they go back to their normal life glorifying and praising God. They're they're telling everyone about what's happened. God invites shepherds like, like us to meet him and to find him. And the Savior's been born. His joy for all people, like all people. They're changed forever. It's really an interesting reversal. God sends heralds, angels, to herald the good news, the birth of Jesus to the shepherds. And then the shepherds become the first heralds of Jesus when they depart. They go back to their life, to their city, to their friends, to their community. They start telling everybody about Jesus, about the Savior, and that he's been born, and everyone's invited in, not just a few certain people. There's a great quote by Thomas Merton. He was an American monk. He said this, but the man who is not afraid to admit everything that he sees to be wrong with himself and yet recognizes that he may be the object of God's love precisely because of his shortcomings can begin to be sincere. His sincerity is based on confidence, not in his own illusions about himself, but in the endless and unfailing mercy of God. You see, when you find Jesus, you don't go back to your life the same. It changes you. It's transformative. When you actually really believe that God invites you into a relationship with him through faith in Christ, who was born on Christmas, and as we believe, also lived the perfect life and gave his life for you on the cross, and as we sang a little bit ago that he then rose from the dead, He conquered sin and death so that you might be forgiven and free. That God invites you into a relationship with him just as you are. All people. And that when you come to find him, you find great joy. You see, that changes you. You can become more sincere, meaning you can lose pretense and living a life of deceit. The illusions of control are gone. The the recognition that you have a very narrow vantage point You really see that, and you recognize that. You recognize that your shortcomings actually boast of God's glory, that he invites you into a relationship with him, and it changes you forever. And one of the things that happens when you come to find Jesus is that you realize that you need to tell other people, that you need to be a herald. So what happened with the shepherds. They found Jesus. They recognized they were invited into that privileged moment The Savior is also their Savior, and it changed them forever, and they went away glorifying and praising God and telling everyone. As you think about this Christmas season, what are you thinking about sharing with other people? Maybe you found a really cool new Christmas song, and you're going to share that. You're going to let everyone know about this cool new Christmas song. If you're like me, you're going to make them listen right there. Like, you're not going to send it, listen later. You're going to listen right here. We're going to listen to it. Maybe you, you came up with like a really cool Christmas drink. You think you're a mixologist. You know what I mean? You're going to make, you're going to have a party. Like, watch what I can do. You're going to burn some wood. You're going to do like a whole thing. 
Maybe you have a really cool, ugly Christmas sweater, and you just can't wait for the party. You got a great white elephant gift you're going to bring, and then you're going to go, that's mine. Yep. Mm-hmm. Maybe you're going to go on Instagram, and you're going to Instagram your tree. How many of you are going to do that? How many of you have already done that? How many of you are going to do that every week? You know, like, just keep going. We share a lot of things in this season. What are you going to share? You see, the reality of this season, for those of us that recognize that the love of God has invited us in to a relationship with God through Christ, that he is your Savior and my Savior. He is Savior for all people. That transformative work through faith has changed you is that the main thing you are to share this Christmas season is Jesus. Share Jesus with people. You don't need to walk around saying, like, Jesus is the reason for the season. You know, like... Some of you are like, I don't know how to do that because, like, it's going to be weird. It's going to be awkward. Like, I don't know how to share Jesus with people because it's weird. Listen, it's really easy. Don't make it weird. Like, that's how easy it is. It's not complex. Like, some of you are thinking, like, okay, how am I going to do this? You're going to be at the office. People on Friday will be like, hey, what are you guys doing this weekend? And you're like, oh, I think I should say something. Jesus. Um, I love Jesus. You love Jesus. Do you uh, want to know Jesus? Like, that's weird. Like, just don't be weird, you know? I guess it's not that complicated. I want to share with you actually three things I want to encourage you to think about and, and to participate in this season because the reality of what we read in this Advent season in the story of the shepherds is that when you recognize that God love, well, God's love calls you in, it also sends you out. And here are really three easy ways. Here's the first one. You inform people. What does that mean? You inform people that you go to church. That's maybe the most countercultural thing that you do, this right here. Some of you, like, you, you've come for the first time in a long time. Some of you come every week. Some of you never thought you would come to church. Some of you come once a month, whatever. You're here. People don't do this. Do you know that? This is unique. It's interesting. It's peculiar. Many of you have many different journeys of your faith. You're starting your journey of faith. You have been a believer for a a long period of time, but here's the reality. The majority of people in our culture have this view of church. One, they've either never been, they don't really know anything about it, or two, they remember when they were a kid that it was dull and boring. They were like me. They pretended to be sick so you could skip. So to meet people that are normal, professionals, and cool, I know you're cool. Most of you, I know you're cool. Normal, cool professionals that actually decide on the weekend to give up a chunk of time on Sunday to go to church and enjoy it so much they want to invite their friends. That's really peculiar and interesting. Maybe one of the greatest evangelistic tools is just to let people know you go to church. People are like, hey, what'd you do this weekend? And you're like, I went to the beach. I went to a restaurant. Don't tell them I went to church, you know. Just let people know. Be authentic about who you are. It doesn't have to be weird. The second one is inquire. Inquire how you can pray for people. This is a difficult season for many people. And maybe you have some friends and some coworkers, and you know some of the things that they're going through and you know what's affecting them. Maybe you can just ask them, hey, how can I pray for you? And not like the kind of happens in the church sometime, like, hey, I'll pray for you. And then like five minutes later, you have no idea what they said. Like, how can I pray for you? And then you literally pull out your phone and you say, do you mind if I just write it down in my notes or my Evernote for me? You write it down 
what they share, and then you pray for them, and then you come back the next week and you ask them how it was, how they're doing, what's happening. You may think to yourself, well, the people that I would say, how can I pray for you? They're like not into Jesus stuff. That's okay. You are. It's okay that they're not. You believe that God is faithful and that he's true and that he fulfills his promises and that he's not a possible prayer genie, but he's actually listening and he actually cares because he invites you and all people into his love. And so you can actually present requests to God on behalf of other people. So you inform people. You go to church, you inquire, and then lastly, you invite. Invite them first to a meal. In a, and what I mean by a meal is not like you say to your coworker, your friend, hey, you want to go to lunch and let's walk to Zook and stand in line and, and get our food at Zook and then walk back to the office and eat separately. We, we walked to lunch. We kind of did that. No, like sit down and have lunch or invite for dinner. Have them over to your house. And not for like anything, again, not anything weird. Not like we sit down and like here's some holy oil I'm going to open up now. I'm just going to bless my food. Are you okay with it? Like, like just eating a meal. That's what Jesus did. That was his example, right? He spent the majority of his ministry walking around just eating dinner and lunch with people. All types of people. So much so that a lot of people looked at him and said, why are you eating, Jesus, with those type of people? Don't you know what people think of you when you spend time with them? He didn't care. Because you see, when you spend time and you eat a meal with somebody, you get to know someone. They get to know you. There's no one else around. Hopefully your phones are in your pocket. You just get to know someone. You share what's happening in each other's lives. And it's how you build relationships is sharing a meal. It's inviting people to eat. And then also inviting people here. Inviting people to church. Not in a weird way. Just saying, hey, would would you like to come to church with me? I really think that you can, you, you would enjoy it. I enjoy it. I think that you would feel welcomed We want to let people know all the time that you can belong to this church before you believe. You can come with your doubts and your questions. You are safe to be here with all those things. Invite your friends. Then say to them, listen, I would love it if you came and then maybe we could get dinner after and you could tell me what you think. Like, and like, you can be completely honest. I would love to hear what you think. See, it's really easy and simple just to invite people to come to Meet the love of God. You know, one of the privileges that God gives us is that he uses us at times in that kind of beginning stages of someone's faith journey. That happened for me. The majority of the time, God uses other people to bring someone into either a relationship with God or to begin that journey of faith. And it is such a privilege. And it starts the majority of the time with just a simple invitation. It's a simple invitation. We should be people, a church, that have come to recognize that, listen, look around the room. God invites all people from all places, from all countries, from all backgrounds, from all professions to himself. That's the message of Christmas, that Jesus came for all people, that he is joy available to all people. You may identify like a shepherd. Listen, we're all shepherds. We're all outcasts in the eyes of God. We all steal from God. We are thieves of God. And yet God invites us in to his love through faith in Christ. But we don't stay there. He sends us out. 
So as you go out this season, will we be a church that is intentional about sharing the love of Christ with our city, with our friends, with our coworkers, by informing them, by inquiring how we can pray for them, and also inviting them to a meal or to church? Will you pray with me? God, we are really thankful uh, that you invite us into a relationship with you. Lord, we don't deserve it. We have many shortcomings. And we are people that believe in the illusion of our control. We forget that we have a narrow point of view. We think that we can accomplish all things by ourselves. Lord, would you remind us that we are people that don't have the type of control that we imagine, that we're finite. Would we come to see and to recognize and to experience afresh the reality of your love, that you invite us into a relationship with you, to come to know you as Savior? Would we trust and cling to the reality that your promises are true, that you fulfill them in your time, in your way, for your glory, but we can rest that you're faithful. And God, will we also be people that share the love of Christ with others? There's no greater call, there's no greater privilege than to share this message of inviting love to others. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.